We'd like to thank the Asbury for our studio. The Asbury is a private members club in Poblacion with a creative and cerebral live in the moment and work, gather, grow for tomorrow. To know more, come find them at astbury.club. Again, that's astbury, A-S-T-B-U-R-Y dot club. Thank you again to our friends from the Asbury. Welcome to Hype Stories, a show about high-impact Pinoy entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs based in the Philippines who have the most disruptive ideas, go on to scale their business to a big success, and then pay it forward by helping the next generation of entrepreneurs, unleashing a massive economic multiplier effect. And with us today, we're very lucky to have the very charming, the very <laughs> affable, the very dynamic Roland Ross, founder of Kumu. Welcome to the show, Roland. Hey, thanks. Uh, welcome. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I thought what we do today, right, is we're just yeah. going to follow this structure. Okay. Dissecting what a high-impact entrepreneur mm. is, right? So we're going to sure. talk about the idea. Mm. Then we're going to talk about your scale of journey. Mm. Then we're going to talk about paying it forward. If that's okay. So let's start with the idea. Yes. And and go as far back as you want, right? Far with back. How this idea started to form in your head. Yeah, I, you know, uh, idea-wise, you know, it really does start with that dream. I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles yeah. uh, to a single mom. Uh, it was just the three of us, me, my mom, and uh, my brother. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was always curious about the Filipino side of my identity. She would be cooking adobo, sinigang, things yeah. like that. And um, going into college, I was always curious about, you know, what it meant to be Filipino. And so uh, I studied at UC Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was nice actually, campus. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's a beautiful <laughs> campus just right on the beach. Yeah. I always joke that it's uh, like, like if the UP... Uh, had a campus in Barakay or something like that. How'd you get anything done? I mean, I'd be out all day. Right? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I think, uh, you know, going to school there uh, helped me more from a social intelligence <laughs> perspective than more yeah. from a critical thinking perspective. And mm-hmm. um, one of those programs was th- they're actually the headquarters of the study abroad program for all of the UCs. Mm, yeah. And uh, one of the campuses was the Philippines. Yeah. And uh, all my classmates were wanting to go to Tokyo, Barcelona. Paris and I was like guys I'm going to the Philippines yeah and no one wanted to go with me and I was like okay fine <laughs> I'm just going and so uh, of all the campuses it was a partnership with UP Los Baños mm-hmm. and there was something beautiful about uh, you know staying in a campus on Mount Makiling mm-hmm. uh, being out in the province and uh, it was a life-changing experience where I knew in my heart that I wanted to be in the Philippines more than I wanted to be back home in Los Angeles. You didn't have to plant rice, did you? And you could no, but rice. we did. Um, you know, the grand great granddaughter of Otley Bayer was one of our teachers. Bayer uh, Bayer Aspirin. Our Bayer uh, Otley Bayer, the the archaeologist. Okay. And Palin, I think yeah, he's an archaeologist. Uh, who is actually based up north, mm-hmm. and uh, she's actually from Banawe, and would actually uh, tell us these stories, uh, you know, about her family's uh, history mm-hmm. and the rice terraces and those types of things. Yeah. And I just knew that after graduating, that's what I wanted to do. But again, that's the, one of the most important things of dreams and never giving up on those dreams, because from a college student up to the point of starting Kumu, was mainly this kind of 19-year journey of failing uh, and never giving up constantly trying things to do things uh, in the Philippines uh, and never giving up. And that's was really what formed the foundation. And, you know, graduating from college, 
uh, I was more of an activist. Yeah. And uh, but the thing is, very quickly, I knew I didn't have the resources to do something. Mm-hmm. And so I, I discovered entrepreneurship, moved to San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, became an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, um, you know, solved a problem for Internet marketers to the point that it was actually worth an exit. And yeah. so when we sold that business, uh, I finally had the resources to go back home. Uh, uh, and then you started making trips to the Philippines, right? Yes. So I was going back and forth. Uh, I, I was uh, in the Philippines. A, a lot of that was, uh, you know, I, I had a, a mentor. Uh, he had written a book called uh, Purpose Driven Life. His name's Pastor Rick Warren. I've, I've, well, who hasn't heard? I, I, I have that book. I've read that yeah, book. He, uh, yeah, I, I read that book. It was a life-changing experience uh, reading that. And uh, after selling the business, I moved to Orange County. And uh, when I was exposed to uh, this initiative that he had called the Peace Plan, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was really helping and doing a lot of that work where it was getting involved in poverty alleviation projects in Tondo, yeah. uh, anti-sex trafficking projects in, in Alongapo and Angeles, yeah. and uh, clean water projects in Rizal. Mm. And so I would go back and forth doing uh, nonprofit work in the Philippines and then going back home to the U.S. engaging in technology and entrepreneurship. Yeah. And it was actually during that back and forth process I met Rexy because he was doing something while he was a student at Brown. Rexy, your co-founder. Yeah. yeah. Rexy, you know, he's the kindest, uh, most intelligent person, uh, most empathetic. Just He's just a great uh, person. Mm-hmm. And when I first met him, he was telling me about this dream of how he's taking Filipino students from all around the world you know, he was taking students from where he was going to school at Brown, mm-hmm. students from Harvard, Stanford, Georgetown, yeah. um, University of California, take him to the Philippines on these two month long internships. And then when I was witnessing the life changing experiences that they went through, it reminded me of the life changing experiences mm. that I went through. Yeah. And so that really started kind of forming this dream about, you know, what could we do engaging the Filipino diaspora? to to have a beneficial impact on the Philippines. Right. Not in that like messianic kind of way that kind of annoys me sometimes with mm-hmm. um, certain folks who come from Western countries like, oh, I come here to save the Philippines. But what Rexy taught me was this side-by-side approach, right. the human-centered design approach of working alongside communities to solve problems. Right, not the uh, voice from above. It says, here's the solution, Yeah. young man. Right? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And... That work where, you know, one of his students, instead of, uh, uh, you know, working for Amazon, would reject that job offer mm. and move to Manila to start an AI company. Yeah. Or instead of, you know, being an investment banker in New York, they would move to Quezon City to start a family business or help a family business. Yeah. Um, those conversations caught the attention of the Philippine ambassador mm. to the U.S. Joey Quisha. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah. Ambassador Quisha at the time. And so I had dinner with him, telling him about my experience mm-hmm. and my dreams for the Philippines. And then that dinner was where he started to really formulate um, what would begin that the clear articulation of the particular value we would provide for the Philippines. And he said, Roland, you're doing entrepreneurship and you're a technology person in California. Yeah. But when you come to the Philippines, you're doing mostly NGO work and nonprofit work. Yeah. And, you know, he said, what if... With all the digital transformation that's happening in the Philippines, mm-hmm. with the internet infrastructure. This was circa 20... What? That was 2016, 2016 okay. was the dinner. Yeah. And then uh, 2017 was when that dinner, I was like, huh, 
you know, tw- okay, so actually, let me back up. So 2016, we have that dinner. I call phone Rexy. I was like, yo, I just had dinner with uh, Jose or Ambassador Quisha. Yeah. What are your thoughts? And he's like, yeah, you know what? With all the nonprofit work I've been doing, what if we actually started a business in the Philippines and then the jobs that we create uh, in the Philippines, yeah. maybe that's how we give back. And that's so awesome. that really formed the foundation of why we wanted to start Kumu in the first place. And so what was the first iteration of Kumu? What was the first thing you were trying to do? Yeah. So for any entrepreneur, uh, you know, you, you you look for a product market fit. And so when studying the market or the Philippine total addressable market, one was, okay, uh, you have a market of at least 100 million people with Gen Z, millennial, median mm-hmm. age. Two, there's billions of dollars being spent on internet infrastructure. And three... Chinese smartphone manufacturers were creating basically iPhone 7s for $100, which yeah. altogether is a perfect storm for a mobile internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of problems to be solved within that particular layer. So then we started looking at other markets that took advantage of mm. that perfect storm in other markets. We saw what Tencent and did with WeChat in China. Yeah. We saw Kakao Corporation building this multi-billion dollar app ecosystem in Korea. Yeah. And then what really inspired us was VNG Corporation in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay. And the the one of the go-to products that they had was a messenger app. So yeah. we did launch this uh, messenger app, Kumu, short for Kumu Star, how are you? Yeah. And uh, it was a pretty... <laughs> it was pretty yeah. what? A lot of people just thought it was a crappy Viber. And uh, <laughs> it kind of sucked because we were halfway through our... Yeah, funds. I guess it's. I guess they could say, well, yeah, there there already exists a message, messenger app for the Philippines. It's yeah. called Viber. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly WhatsApp. That's exactly it. Yeah. We thought that a localized approach to messaging would be enough, but the the network effects of the the uh, messengers were already um, well entrenched that's in the right. market. Yeah, and so what ended up happening though is we noticed that there was a small cohort of users uh, in the background who were actually using a feature that wasn't even the core part of the app. And that was live streaming. Uh, yeah. So that was the epiphany. That's... Yeah. The Well, the epiphany comes from, and this is one of the things that's important for Kumu's culture. It was actually one of our interns who brought it up. Yeah. Uh, Mika Reyes. Oh, shout Mika, out. Yeah. 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 You know, we're so super proud of her. She's uh, in she's the middle of working on something right now, right? Yeah. The, she's the fundraising. Parallax, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, she, she brought it up. She was looking at the data and said, guys, like, um, you know, there's a small cohort of users who are live streaming on Kumu. They're not mm-hmm. using the messenger part. Yeah. Like there's something here. Can we investigate this? And for anyone trying to seek product market fit, you have to talk to your users. Yeah. And so we picked up the phone and started talking to them. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, yeah, you know, I love live streaming. There's this real raw and authentic nature of live streaming. I'm not pretending my life is perfect on social media. I'm not hiding behind a keyboard and engaging, yeah. engaging in toxic behaviors. Something real, raw, and authentic about live streaming. And so, yeah, just uh, super grateful for, for Mika to helping us because, um, you know, those insights gave us the confidence to pivot into live streaming, which is where uh, most well, let's, of our Let's talk about that been. pivot, right? Because there comes a moment where you, you hit sort of a fork and yeah. you're going to have to make a bet. Right? Yes. So tell me about that bet. So having seen this, you know, thing in the data, yeah, that said live stream is the way to go. I mean, was that an easy decision, or did you agonize over that? Well, that one was. Um, it was somewhat agonizing because again, you only have six months of runway left. Yeah, and we're trying to get some sort of traction around this thesis of building a consumer social business on top of the Philippine total addressable market. Mm-hmm. So with six months left to go, we're already six months into 
uh, no, no, we beta was February. We pivoted in six. Yeah. So we're six months in. Yeah. And so because we raised enough for one year. Mm-hmm. And so who were the early investors that you guys? Yeah, it was friends uh, and family, my, my right? friends and family. Yeah. And then uh, Liza Gokongwei with her personal okay. check. That's right. Okay. And so six months of life. Okay. Yeah, with six months of life left. And uh, we did look at a particular pivot that was also mostly messenger and check-in related. It was a bourbon, uh, an app called Bourbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great team, really awesome product. But you know, people are like, "Oh, I don't get it. It's like a messenger meets like uh, you know one of those check-in apps, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be." And they were looking at their data, and they saw that most of the user, or there was a cohort of users that were utilizing the photo sharing and photo editing function yes. of the app. Yeah. And so they were about to run out of money too, but they said, you know what? No one likes that messenger part that we mm-hmm. built the app for, yeah. but everyone's photo sharing, photo editing. Yeah. They beco- they decide to pivot to yeah. becoming a photo sharing, photo editing app. They changed mm-hmm. their name to Instagram, yeah. and then the app really grows. So we got a lot of confidence around looking at those data layers and talking to your users and say, okay, well, if Instagram was able to pivot from a messenger capacity to That's photo right. sharing, yeah. why don't we just at least make that bet into live streaming and in August 2018, when we pivoted to becoming live streaming app. Okay, so let's talk about that idea. So what is the yeah. core idea, right, with this live streaming platform? How do you, how do you talk about that? Yeah, so when, when building product market fit, it's that aha moment, yeah. you know, the aha moment of where people say, oh, okay, this is what makes our product special. Mm-hmm. And the aha moment for us, uh, specifically, watching around 420 seconds of content on average within the first 24 hours of creating an account so that you could spend one and a half hours on Kumo for within the first 28 days hmm. is um, this authentic connection. Hmm. Uh, authentic connection and then authentic community to build around it. So let's first talk about authentic connection. So when you look at the product, we talked about what Miko was talking about, real raw, real raw and authentic experiences of creating live stream uh, content live. Yeah. Y- there's no pretending. Mm-hmm. But then what made it, the connection even tighter is on the viewer side. Yeah. Viewers aren't recognizing the content with a view or recognizing content with a like. If you like the content, you actually send them a virtual gift right. or a microtransaction in real time. So it's like a digital version of busking, uh, you yeah. know, like street performance. Right. And being able to do that digitally to recognize content on top of this layer of this, these core values around safety, positivity, acceptance, mm-hmm. we created an environment for authentic connection and authentic communities to form around. Uh, and we basically are developing the product around that authentic connection and to really grow that uh, business. And uh, you're doing something as well in the process, right? You are allowing individuals in the Philippines to make a living. Yes. Right? Yes, it's so it's, it was because of that business model uh, you know, we have uh, around 1,500 content creators who earn a full-time income on the app. Yeah. About 10,000 who earn an income part-time. Yeah. Uh, who mostly getting support from the Filipino diaspora. So mm-hmm. Filipino-Americans, Canadians, Australians who are sending those gifts. So we're actually already utilizing a behavior that's well-known, which is, um, you know, the billions of dollars that are sent back home through remittances. But what we've been able to do is create authentic communities and authentic connections digitally yeah. um, through connecting um, you know, global Filipinos who are supporting these content creators back home. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, 
talk about the community a little bit because I know it's an incredibly strong community. It's a self-policing yeah. community. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very it's it's also kind of squeaky clean, right? This is a yes, you know, you no can't even abuse, curse on the app. No abuse, no politics kind of place, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, that was a heart wrenching decision because we knew that um, because our business model is focused on the generosity of the community. Yeah. Uh, and one of our biggest differentiators is we were looking at live stream competitors where, you know, if you don't have these content moderation and trust and safety uh, processes mm -hmm. in place, live streaming for money can go really dark. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It's just yeah. porn and all yeah. this stuff and illegal activities. Mm -hmm. And so we really relied on the community. So we actually created a content moderation growth loop where by having our users being involved in content moderation, yeah. we're able to deploy tens of thousands of volunteer content moderators who make sure that the app is safe 24-7, who report offending content to our Kumu police force who are in the community. Oh, that's cool. That's so cool. And then um, broken up into barangays, and they have yeah. these 24-7 uh, kind of beats. Uh, you know, we're really proud of the fact that we do shut down offending content within 58 seconds. That's amazing. Which is um, well, no one's a, a completely different model, and I must say, much more cost effective than the YouTubes and the Googles of the world, right? You have all these yeah, ironically, BPOs, right? In the yeah, ironically, they have thousands of employees in the Philippines. Yeah. You know, right. doing content moderation. So, so uh, which kinds of content tend to be the most popular? Is it the singing? Is it the discussions? Which? Yeah. Um, so. So social entertainment uh, on the entertainment side, it's singing, uh, pop culture, and sports. Yeah. Um, and, and, and singing, uh, <laughs> that's a well-known thing about our, our market. Yeah. Uh, just so much singing. That's right. So much singing. <laughs> and uh, from a pop culture perspective, you know, we've been really seeing things like, um, you know, cultural entertainment. So we, we've been working with um, influencers, mm -hmm. folks from all across the board. And then in sports, um, you know, really identifying communities like uh, the volleyball community, yeah. uh, specifically the female volleyball community has just been really great for us. So yeah. let's switch gears a little bit into yeah. the scale up part, right? Yeah. So you have your you have your product market fit. Yes. Flywheels beginning to move, right? Sure. If ever so slowly. How did you then turbocharge this thing, right? Both in terms of, you know, raising the money you needed as well as rethinking the organization that you needed. Yeah. To push this thing forward. Yes. So in terms of that, um, our, our flywheel or our growth loop is really around um, content and really defining what that content is because content creates the communities. Mm -hmm. well, actually, it's almost like um, the three C's uh, kind of it, it's like really the content and then the community and then the commerce you build on top of those communities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so from a content perspective, we have three layers. We have. Uh, PGC, which is professional generated content, mm -hmm. PUGC, which is uh, professional user generated content, and then there's UGC, which is user generated content. Mm -hmm. okay. So when I walk you through the the flywheel, it's like okay, from a PGC layer, a lot of people have known us for, um, for example, we took a Big Brother uh, television concept that yeah. was something very popular with ABS-CBN. Mm -hmm. So that's professionally generated content where uh, we have um, IP that generates a lot of downloads for the app. Yeah. When you generate a lot of downloads for the app, we have to get that particular user to watch at least 420 seconds of content within the first 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And from there, there's a certain percentage of those users who say, oh, wow, 
um, they discovered the um, user generated content piece of creating content and getting paid for doing that. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, the user generated content. And then from there, um, our talent and creative development teams then recruit them to join the Kuma Creator Academy or um, there's many talent agencies mm. who have built full-time businesses on top of the app. They recruit those user-generated um, content uh, creators mm -hmm. and they become professional user-generated content creators who uh, go through a training system and those types of things. Right. And then from there, um, they become famous enough to get right into the PGC. They'll get into the PBB house. Yeah. They'll um, start in a... Uh, movie. Mm -hmm. uh, we were recently the number two movie on Netflix uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, that was pretty cool. Which movie? It's called Love at First Stream. Yeah, yeah wow. you should watch it. Uh, Direct wow. Kathy Garcia. Uh, she was really inspired by okay. uh, Kumu during the pandemic. Right. And her movie, um, you know, she's well known. Her last movie before that was Hello, Love, Goodbye. Yeah. Uh, so this is her most recent one. And it debuted top 10. And then we were watching it. We were number 10, then number yeah. 8, number 6, number 2. Um, but then uh, Emma Roberts uh, still held on to that number one yeah. as a movie called The Hunt that we couldn't think. But for the longest time, I mean, it's just such a cool use case. And how we're able to fund that, yeah. that's professional generating content, is we created contests. Whoever receives these most virtual gifts gets yeah. roles in the movie. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so we had cool. like a, um, so one of the love teams, soundtracks, those types of things. Yeah. And um, the revenue generated from that helped us offset the cost of producing a feature-length film yeah. that ended up becoming one of the top movies on Netflix. Yeah. So that's kind of like how that wheel goes. And because of that movie, it drains more downloads, and then it right. just goes like this, like this. So like all this. of this stuff costs money, right? It's expensive. Yes. And so Super. going back to the scale-up, right? Raising the money. I mean, I, I do remember that uh, you guys raised the Series B. Right? How did that happen? How difficult was that? And then several months later, the first Series C in the mm. Philippines with a, you know, extremely prestigious uh, venture capital mm -hmm. company. Right? Maybe talk a little bit about yes, that Yes, I mean, part when it scaling. comes to institutional investment, you know, those are one of those things where you really have to stick to your guns and just focus on community. I remember when we were in 2017, when thinking about fundraising, we had a community app and uh, at the time ICOs were all the rage and yeah. people were saying, oh, why don't, instead of fundraising with venture capital, you can do ICOs. But no, we just decided let's not, my mom taught me this thing that still, I still remind myself. She always says, never take shortcuts. Yeah. Or actually, sorry, no shortcuts. I still hear her head, no shortcuts, no shortcuts, no shortcuts. And it just felt like a shortcut at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So we said, let's just go down that hard path mm -hmm. of building a product that has some product market fit that can get the attention of some investors. Yeah. And so at the time, uh, Kurt Tanyu uh, from Open Space Ventures had met us when we were still just a messenger app. Mm -hmm. uh, he was pretty impressed with the team. Um, he really loved our long-term vision of building this technology company, prioritizing the Philippine TAM. Mm -hmm. But he noticed that we were way off on metrics. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that we were really grateful for him was he gave us metrics to hit for, like you know, can you get to a million dollars a month in, or a million dollars a year in revenue? Mm -hmm. Show some product market fit and a growing monthly active user base. Yeah. And it was through that coaching. Uh, that we met the partner Hian and he said guys if this is entertainment you need someone to just supercharge it yeah you need to get one of those media conglomerates uh, to, be, to be a supporter uh. and then what happened was uh, 60 days after that conversation we came back with an investment offer from ABS-CBN yeah. and then that was when uh, Hian was like okay these guys are legit yeah. I'm gonna help start you guys and then he joined with ABS it was the first ever pre-Series A 
round that they've ever done yeah, at Open Space. Right. But they had some conviction that with the involvement of ABS-CBN, they could help push us to getting to our Series A mm -hmm. metrics. And so, yeah. Because yeah, Hien had some success of his own, right? Launching a food channel. Yes. In, so uh, in he Singapore. was... He was really, uh, he had expressed a desire to be a part of a media business because, yeah. you know, one thing that we loved about Open Space was when they funded Gojek, um, it wasn't even an app yet. It was a call yeah. center. <laughs> okay. And when they led their Series A, they helped them pivot from call center to becoming the largest consumer internet app Brilliant. in Indonesia. Yeah. And so when they were investing in us, there's a lot of hopes and experiences that from what they learned from Gojek that they could help us be a consumer internet yeah. champion in, in, in the Philippines. The next round was right? yes. Talk about the next round because that was kind of a, a sort of a hallmark event, right? In, yeah, in, in you Philippine know, internet. It was around that time, so we started to grow, and then uh, we met actually. We actually that was a very competitive round. I remember uh, we started getting a lot of traction. Uh, it was the first time we were hitting the number one uh, yeah. in the the Google and Apple app stores and. One thing that we really appreciate Akshay was just his his understanding. So he comes from SIG. That's right. Um, you know, SIG is this, uh, another legendary firm. Um, you know, their biggest bet I remember was when they funded Yang Jimin. That's right. Three times. Yeah. So Yang Jimin had a, an idea, didn't work out, mm -hmm. but they really impressed with him. He had another idea. Yeah. Really impressed him, didn't work out. The third one was Bite Dance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And from that, being the first ever institutional investor in Yang Jimin, that initial $3 million, to yeah. where TikTok is today, yeah. their SIG's investment mm -hmm. is now worth like over 40 or $50 billion. Yeah. It's one of the most legendary investments they've ever made. That's right. And I think not just with ByteDance, I think SIG's experience um, funding and helping scale mm -hmm. multiple social and media entertainment unicorns all around the world uh, we, we just knew that uh, in our hearts when looking at all the other series, series B term sheets that they would be someone who could help us get to that particular scale. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Then you grew and, you know, this was a surprise, right? Within less than a year, there was a Series C. First time yes. ever in the Philippines, right? With the first investment ever by General Atlantic in a Philippine company. Yeah. And that was actually, you know, going back to Endeavor, um, Alan Taylor was the one who was guiding us through a lot of the things because I, there was a situation where General Atlantic was actually thinking of writing its smallest check ever at the Series B thing, but yeah. it probably would have been too dilutive. And, you know, Alan was really coaching us through the framing of the conversations and the narrative and saying like, look, um, I remember that he was on holiday. Yeah, he was on holiday. <laughs> he had to sneak out of the house because he didn't want to wake up. His yeah, wife. it was it was the craziest thing. Yeah, we woke him up because of the time difference. <laughs> it was way past midnight. Yeah, and you know, just really helping us guide the conversation. Say, look, this is not a no. This is like a you know, let's explore this yeah. later. Yeah. And yeah. so. So General Atlantic actually got really familiar with the business already at yeah. the Series B stage. So maybe that's one of the reasons why um, it was so close to each other, and so. You know, the pandemic had helped supercharge our growth, that there was a lot of confidence that with what we've been learning around um, our content bets and our ability to build communities around that, yeah. that, um, you know, General Atlantic, uh, gosh, I, it, that was one of, you know, there were some implications about that. And I appreciate you bringing that up because this is going to be their first ever investment in the Philippines. Yeah. And we had this idea that if we end up going down this path, it's not going to help Kumu, 
might actually help supercharge the entire Philippine tech ecosystem. That's right. That's right. And so we just knew we just had to do it right. So always erring on the side of just being completely open with our mm-hmm. books, sharing every single thing, no stone unturned. Yeah. And, no shortcuts. Uh, no shortcuts. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you know, they're they're you know, for a long term vision, another thing is we want to be IPO able. That's something that we shared with Endeavor. Yeah. That doesn't mean we're going to IPO. Doesn't mean we're going to exit. We just want to be IPOable because the implication is we built a world class company mm-hmm. with the best team who understands how to execute, do strategy, yeah. have the right timing, and to be world class. We knew that Journal Atlantic, with its long, long history. I mean, we're the fourth ever social app they've ever invested in. The yeah. first one was Facebook. Yeah. Second was uh, Snapchat. Third was is ByteDance. Yeah. And we're the fourth. Uh, they've also invested in Uber, Airbnb. That's so, a good company to be keeping there. <laughs> yeah. So it was just, we, we just knew that with their, their long, long history of really uh, helping companies yeah. IPO, um, that this was, a, this was a firm that could help us get to that kind of world-class right. state. Yeah. And so one of the things that happens right in the scale-up journey when you start bringing in these growth investors with all these experiences, they, they kind of push you, right? To be yeah. bitter, bigger and better. And yes. I'm sure something happened right on the talent side where you were forced to sort of look at what you had mm. and with your expansion, think about, well, who else do we need to bring this to the next level? Talk about that a little bit. And then I think we'll end up with uh, a little discussion on paying it forward. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's this whole concept that going from zero to one yeah. is a lot different from going from one to 100. Yeah. So processes have to change. Uh, team has to level up. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of things just, uh, it's a, just a completely different business in terms of scaling up rather right. than starting up. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you know, you, there's a, you know, there was a co-founder who, who uh, you know, ironically, we still work with because he's helping us with our, our multi-app strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that there comes a time where, you know, people who are at zero to one aren't those people who are at one to 100. Yeah. And uh, by doing that, we actually had to really take a hard look at the rest of the team to either level up, you know, really scaling the business where, you know, pre-pandemic, we were 50 employees and going from 50 employees to over 500 employees yeah. in a year and a half wow, that's without crazy. an office. Yeah. Um, you know, with locations in China, Singapore, uh, we have a small office in LA and in Manila, all within a year and a half is just um, a lot of things. So it wasn't just team, but changes in processes. Yeah. You know, bringing in a COO to help define what the Kumu way is, mm-hmm. you know, really tight, um, you know, data driven strategy and execution layer with accountability. You know, I, th- I think a lot of times, uh, from an accountability perspective, uh, we can just kind of go wild uh, with yeah. bets. But if there's no casing, uh, there's no data, there's no accountability, it's just really hard to really yeah. um, scale up. And at that point, I think your your perspective shifts as well, right? In terms of the talent pool, you start mm. going from looking who's around me to mm. what's in the world and where yes. can I find the best. Yes. Right. I mean, was that something you thought about only after the Series C or Series B? Were you beginning to start recruiting, you know, the best wherever they might happen to live? Yeah, well, you know, at the Series B, uh, we were always inspired by 
uh, people who are executing on a high level. Yeah. So actually, Endeavor was actually helpful with that because with the the network that you have, we were able to get introductions to people who could help coach us and train us. But then, as we were taking on consultants to help us grow our business, we started realizing, oh wow, I think these consultants actually really like our business. Why don't we just send them job offers? Yeah. You know, and those types of things. And then it started helping us really say like, wow, this person who helped us grow to say like or who is helping us solve our business at a $100 million valuation has actually built a business at a $10 billion mm. valuation, you start realizing it starts stretching you and starting realizing the types of things that you have to do, the internal work required yeah. uh, to have that maturity, to have that leadership and those types of things to to motivate and coach and, and, and find the right peoples and the right seeds. Okay, so we'll end the show, we'll end today with um, my favorite topic, yes. right? which is this whole idea of paying it forward. Because mm. I think it's the most special thing about this very unique and special organization. And it's certainly the reason I chose to join Endeavor, and yeah. I'm still at Endeavor. Right? It's this ethos of helping the next generation of entrepreneurs become successful. Mm. right? Because when you think about our theory of change, right, to use nonprofit speak, our theory of change is you can build an ecosystem mm. when you have entrepreneurs who pay it forward, mm. right? When you have entrepreneurs who mentor others, who invest in others, who inspire others, who share their networks with others. And so I'd like to, uh, you know, talk to you because you, you guys have certainly been sort of poster boys, right, for this pay-it-forward oh, Really? I didn't yes, know that. absolutely. You know, we've oh, actually wow. just, uh, you know, created a, an influence map of the Philippine ecosystem. Sure. So you guys are one of the emerging centers yeah. of paying it forward. So let's talk about, uh, you know, what you have been up to, right, in this regard. Yeah, you know, one of my... So before moving to the Philippines, the it was a two part dream. One was wanted to have a beneficial impact on millions of Filipinos. Yeah. Two was um, this approach of like really mentoring, coaching, investing, and five hundred uh, purpose driven leaders. And I felt that I couldn't do that whole mentoring five hundred purpose driven leaders first without mm-hmm. actually having to do something first myself, mm-hmm. which is looking like what yeah. Kumu is turning into. Yes. To earn the right mm-hmm. to do that. And when I discovered Endeavor and the mission of it, it just really, I remember telling myself, like, look how cool this org is. Like, and you remember we always had this joke. Oh Are my we God. Be cool the, enough? The, the famous quote, right? Yeah. Like you, I was you, like, it was in the match cap, right? In Rockwell. Yeah. I was telling Rex, I was like, I wonder if we'd ever be cool enough to be in this org. And then he goes, Endeavor, you know, he's like, I, I used to work there. He used to tell me that he used to work there. And then he would tell me about this org and, yeah. um, because, you know, he was also at Ashoka and other places too. And uh, it was just something that really resonated with me and uh, this whole concept of paying it forward. And so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, even during the earliest uh, stages, uh, we did have Endeavor entrepreneurs who helped us out. Yeah. You know, Ron Ho specifically at yeah. Coins. Yeah. Um, you know, and... I, a lot of mentors uh, I, I do remember and I, I think that now that it's our turn um, well not, not really our turn I think anytime someone ever ha- asked us a question you know when we raised our series A there were some people that wanted to help us series B but for some reason that series C level a lot of the back channel conversations because if you look at our cap table right you have um, Ayala Gokome C you have Foxmont yeah. Core Capital yeah. Open space, 
kicks or open space SIG in General Atlantic, like an Endeavor Catalyst, yeah, and also an Endeavor Catalyst, which I ended yeah. up, you know, being yeah. an investor in. And I, I just think that like we, anytime someone <laughs> invests or wants to invest, uh, an investor is asking us about that company, mm-hmm. and then we're utilizing from an entrepreneurial perspective back channel conversation to really help coach and train and help yeah. startups actually, um, you know, be investable or advising them on on how to talk to these investors and those types of things or um, with some uh, comes from some startups helping them on operations those types of things yeah so, yeah, yeah you know, we, we actually did a study some years ago there was an article that came out in TechCrunch by yeah. um, by Rhett Morris of Endeavor Insight and one of the and they were studying the New York entrepreneur ecosystem mm. and they looked at who were the most successful entrepreneurs and as it turns out the most successful we're three times more likely to have uh, a mentor, a successful mentor, than those who are not successful, right? Mm. So it really underscores the importance of having a mentor, right? A successful mentor in your life. Um, if you were just starting out, right, then you're shy and you're, you know, you, you're, you don't feel worthy of approaching a successful person. What, what advice would you give them? Mm. Like this, because I'm sure a bunch of people over time have approached you and Rexy for advice. Right? Sure. But it must have taken quite a bit for them to, uh, you know, sort of take that leap and, you know, you know be in the presence of gods. <laughs> you know, the the one thing is, it, it's actually what's more important than the first meeting. Yeah, it's what you show in the second, mm. and then that helps you filter out whether you want to spend more time with that person or not. Yeah, like for example, in the case of Hyun, he said. All right, boys, you guys seem, you know, uh, really excited by what you do. And then he had a suggestion, you know, maybe get like a media conglomerate. Who wants mm-hmm. to and then 60 yeah. days later, we yeah. had an investment offer from ABS-CBN. And that's the same thing. Like I, when I look at the people that have mentored, we have mentored, the ones I spend the most time with are the ones that after that first initial, because mm-hmm. sometimes that first, okay, getting that first initial is super hard, yeah. but don't be shy because... It's a lot easier to get that first meeting than the follow-up. Yeah. So in that first meeting, you you really got to do whatever it takes to get that first meeting. But the fastest way to waste that first meeting is not taking advantage of the follow-up to show the result. And so, you know, just thinking about um, a lot of the times, you know, one of the... One of our best mentors that we've had from a tech perspective, I remember, was uh, Stephanie C. over at Thinking Machines. Yes, that's right. And when we meet with her, we take all this advice <laughs> that she's telling us. Yeah. We write it all down, write it all, write it down, write it all yeah. down, and says, "Boom, this is, this is what we did with mm-hmm. what you said." Yeah. And then from that, she spends more time with us. That's amazing. You know, that's and, very good advice. You know, those types of things, and it, it's just really important. So, like for example, when um, one person who's been taking so much of it, <laughs> Is uh, Ron uh, Beitong over at uh, Podcast Network? Yeah. So much so, I just ended up just investing in him, you know, and, and those <laughs> okay. types of things. And my gosh, when he follows up, he's just like, "Look, this is what I did. This is what I did. This is what I did." Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we go and those types of things. Yeah. Or like someone, one of the most intentional people I've ever met, um, Bella uh, over at Edamama. Yeah. I Bella remember Gupta. when it was her first, our first meeting. She had this idea. Yeah, I remember it was right outside VGC. She was telling us about um, Edamama and those types of things, and really uh, giving her advice on our experience with mm-hmm. our investors. Yeah, and and those types of things, and then how 
precise she was with our feedback mm-hmm. and getting what she wanted. Yeah. And if you look at her investment table, it's yeah. very similar to our investors. That's right. That's right. right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's those types of conversations where you pay it forward because someone like Bella, um, who's like super intentional and very precise and knows what she wants. I this of all the entrepreneurs, she's one of the ones that I respect the most and just so proud of what she's been able to do yeah. uh, in the ecosystem. Yeah. You know, I, I think um, when when spending time with people, it's yes, it, it, that first one's important, but mm-hmm. it's just like, what do you do with that information? The second, yeah. I remember uh, Lista. Uh, it's a it's a Series A startup that uh, that I invested in, in, and just the way that he follows up and the way that he actually applies um, that that information. Yeah, you know, one in yeah, there's just a a lot of different examples, but the ones that I've seen who have really been utilizing that second meeting mm-hmm. the most uh, are the ones who, uh, you know, just take up most of my time. Yeah. And the ones who yeah. just don't follow up or they're just going nowhere, you know, I, that's... That's right. Yeah. That's right. So investments, right? Because you mentioned Lista. Mm. Um, how methodical or intentional are you in these investments? Like, what, what's what's your playbook because mm. you've invested in a bunch, right? Ah, uh, like five right now. Not too much. It's because yeah. I'm not nowhere near. I haven't exited yet or anything. Um, yeah, you know, small angel tracks. I do hope uh, in the future. Uh, I do see myself in that fund capacity to help mm-hmm. really turbocharge that 500 purpose-driven leader vision. But um, it all goes back to our first advisor, uh, Dado Banato. Yeah. Um, when when Dado talked about before you fund. Here are the four key areas before we fund. Yeah. You know, what is your technological advantage? Yeah. You know, what is your operating plan or go-to-market plan? Mm -hmm. And then these last two key areas, what is your team? Who are the natural engineers? Who are the natural problem solvers? Is this the team that can actually Mm. do it? And then the most important is timing. Yeah. That's right. So I go through this kind of criteria of the four key things that Dada taught us before we even have the the funding conversation. So just deep dive into the tech advantage, the go-to-market plan team and timing yeah that's awesome that's uh, awesome yeah. right you have a new baby and it uh it's based on a philippine dish right sinigang oh. valley oh <laughs> yes that. wow because that's you know that's a real jolt of mojo i think into the ecosystem right so kudos Appreciate to you yeah. and rexy so maybe we'll, let's spend a few minutes just talking about that and what you hope to see evolve over time yeah sinigang valley is um you know something that linda actually inspired me with was Linda Rodenberg. Yes, yeah. over at Endeavor, you know, she's just one of the most dynamic leaders uh, I've ever met. Yeah, you know, and she was talking about how ecosystems are turning a corner in both Mexico mm-hmm. and in the Philippines. Yeah, and she was talking about this whole concept of big fishing, little fish, and those types of things, and you know, seeing that shift. And when she said something about ecosystem turning the corner, I started realizing that our community should be turning a corner yeah. as well. Yeah. And I'll always be grateful for previous iterations and generations of the startup communities. Yeah. But I did notice that maybe, um, especially at the Series A plus world, there's like so many more now mm-hmm. than there were five years ago. Yeah. But there hasn't really been that kind of intentional way for all of us to kind of come together in right. a way. Yeah. And so... Thinking about it in my experience when I was in San Francisco and, and exposed to Silicon Valley when we sold our startup, and then prior to starting Kumu, spending 10 years in Santa Monica area and being exposed to Silicon Beach, 
Yeah. Uh, I started really thinking about uh, like one particular dinner I remember in Silicon Valley. It was there was a a blog that was covering us. Mm. Um, uh, Mike was it Mike Arrington? He had a blog, uh, TechCrunch, and he had this dinner, and uh, there was this dinner, and at that dinner it was like Sean Parker, Mark Zuckerberg, blah yeah. blah. And everyone, they all, I think uh, almost half that table used to work together at PayPal. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, I think, uh, Reed Hoffman was there. It was yeah. just the craziest dinner. And we were at that dinner, but to be completely honest, uh, we like snuck into that dinner <laughs> just to, to be exposed and be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. And to see the network effect of the power of a company of like PayPal. Oh, one of the reasons why we knew that was because our first advisors, uh, Luke and Kenny, were co-founders of PayPal. Mm. They had went to Stanford with Peter Thiel. Yeah. And um, and so they founded PayPal. And then after they sold it, they had created a, a venture capital fund called Founders Fund. Yeah. So being exposed to that in Silicon Valley, um, it wasn't just Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, but it was a particular community inside yeah. this region called Silicon Valley. And so for Sinigang Valley, I wanted to really create something similar to not really create steward is the word yeah a community of high performing uh folks all across the board whether mm-hmm. on the enabling side whether it's on the investment side yeah you know even like uh on the legal side mm-hmm. uh, and all the top startups and all and, and just putting them all together in the same room and seeing what type of magic can happen similar to like what i saw on cool. that dinner table yeah. in silicon valley because it was crazy i didn't even realize how important that dinner was yeah Actually, I didn't realize until now that I'm talking to you. Because I remember it was a long table, yeah. 30 people. But imagine in that 30 people, it was like Mark Zuckerberg, Sean Parker, Peter Thiel, oh you know, my. Reed Hoff. It was just a crazy dinner that was hosted was, by uh, TechCrunch. It was Mount Olympus. Yeah, it was crazy. And so I was just thinking about what would happen if we brought everyone together yeah. uh, and, and helped on this vision of really... Uh, helping the, the tech ecosystem. What a great way to end, right? I mean, there's so much promise in this ecosystem. We are beginning to see this flywheel begin to move. Mm. And you guys are at the front of this. Right? And yeah, uh, yeah. I'll just end by saying, you know what? You are a true, what we call 3M entrepreneur. Oh, Magaling. Oh, thank you. Matino. Mapagbigay, right? With emphasis on the Mapagbigay, the generous bit. Yeah. So, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for spending time today and a whole hour with us here yeah, uh, no problem. in our little makeshift podcast studio. So, that was Roland Ross, co founder and CEO of Kumu, the largest social entertainment app in the Philippines. Thank you so much for listening to this second episode of the show. If you want to connect with us, Our email is hello at endeavor.org.ph and you can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. This show was produced by Endeavor Philippines. I'm Manny Ayala and you've been listening to Hype Stories.